welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. In this episode, we welcome back our good friend, Marcus Cribb. Good evening. Thanks very much for having me for round two as such. Yeah, definitely round two. Uh, you remember a few episodes back, we had Marcus on for the Duke of Wellington episode. And uh, if you haven't been to the website, uh, Marcus, could you tell them the website that we like to promote on these episodes? Uh, so I've got a few things going. Uh, yep. Obviously, I always want to shout out to Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargroves Charity, of which I'm one of a few of the trustees. Yep. Uh, and so we're online and on social and that. But I've got my own uh, stuff that I do, mostly on Twitter, uh, MCRIP History. And uh, I put a few items on uh, dukeofwellington.org. Dukeofwellington.org. Yeah, that's that my website. Awesome. Yep, yep, yep. Love that one. But uh, yeah, the charity is a good one as well. Uh, which I am a member and I recommend all my followers. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. All my followers, go ahead and join that charity. It's a great group. Okay, so we talked about the Duke of Wellington last time we had Marcus on the show. So I figured we'd talk about, would it it be considered his right-hand man, General Hill? Well, already that's a little bit of debate. We'd we'd mentioned a few last time, didn't we? We did. uh, We've got Hill, Beresford, and Graham as kind of some of Wellington's top lieutenants and... uh, I think of Hill as kind of Wellington's right-hand man. Uh, a few would probably say it was uh, probably Beresford, and at times there was certainly uh, Graham, Lord Lindock. But to me, I've got a bit of a, bit of a soft point for uh, Hill. Uh, this is this is Roland Hill, uh, first Viscount, and uh, he's a bit of a favourite of mine. Yeah, I was looking at the history of him, and it looked like in terms of independent command, um, the, the best way I could associate it to all my uh, Grand Army followers he reminded me a lot of Marshall Lawn. Like Napoleon would give Marshall Lawn an assignment, and he didn't have to worry about it getting done. It would just get done, and that's kind of what, what General Hill reminded me of. Yeah, Hill gets a few independent commands, and also gets some really independent, uh, well, really important independent postings. And I think that's why I tend to put that he was probably one of his his top guys, and uh, he also appears again at Waterloo. For me, the best thing about him is his men like him, and I okay. think that speaks volumes. Yeah, we'll get into uh, why he was such a fan favorite of his men. But uh, let's let's talk about his early uh, life. Um, born in 1772. And w- was it a noble family he was born into? Uh, it was a noble family, uh, a baronet. So that's like the lowest level. So that's a, a sir, a knight mm-hmm. uh, up in Shropshire. So for me, the, the north of England, but kind of a, the north Midlands in England and uh, lots of big land, uh, but not one of like the big rich families, uh, the Hill family. Uh, that's really kind of going to be known and have they have lots of land up and, and quite big houses because uh, mm-hmm. land happens to be cheap up there but not one of the big influential families that uh, we know of right right okay and he was the fourth child and second son in the family that's right and he was educated at the king's school was that a, a famous school back in the day uh it's one of the uh, bigger ones up kind of in the in the midlands yeah so uh he had his his normal education uh, and then commissioned into uh, the 38th foot uh, mm-hmm. after leaving school. That's so around he, 1790, we're talking. 1790. Uh, he was born 1772 in Shropshire. Right. Uh, so quite quickly into the army. Uh, what's that, about 18 years old? 18 years, yeah. Uh, which is quite normal. So the second son's not really going to inherit all the money. That The first one's the eldest son. The eldest son uh, inherits everything. You know, that's, they survive, and the second son's basically uh, going to have to go off and make the right. That's interesting. Kind of like the Duke of Wellington. He was the second son, so he had to go and make it off on his own. 
Right, he, he wasn't going to inherit the titles and bits, so he had to work his own way. Uh, Hill, Roland Hill's kind of like that. He has to go and do his own. And the army's a good uh, good trade. So not only can they uh, learn, you know, uh, something to do, a career, working right. well, it's something that's socially acceptable in Georgian society, wearing the uniform, serving your country. Um, mm-hmm. But there is the chance of advancement, going up the ranks, earning glory and riches and fame and that kind of thing. Yeah, and it looks like uh, he was promoted pretty quickly, at, you know, uh, Lieutenant 1791 and Captain in 1793. Uh, yes, probably. I want to make any assumptions here because it's not noted. He probably purchased his way up. Uh, which it. was the system of the British Army at the time. Uh, not a good system, really. If you had the money, I think it was after one to two years' service, depending on rank, you could basically buy your way up. And there was ways to actually kind of uh, twist that and go up quicker. But that was kind of normal. You do a bit of time at the bottom. And sure, he did a little bit of time. Uh, and then going up to captain by 1793. Got it. And then from there, he... Um his first uh, defeat really i guess in the siege of toulon napoleon's first major victory yeah and as far as i'm aware it's his first action you know he crosses uh, napoleon's path at uh, toulon quite quickly mm-hmm. and uh yeah you know that was obviously you know napoleon wasn't in full command there but he was a, a big part of that that victory there and uh he served under uh who was it the guy who uh surrendered to both uh george washington and napoleon O'Hara, I believe that was. Yeah, O'Hara, that's right. O'Hara, so yeah, he had the, uh, let's say the honour of uh, <laughs> both Washington and Napoleon's surrender. Yeah. And uh, Viscount Hill, as he became, uh, actually holds, took the dispatches back to England, uh, which is normally a position of somebody who's done quite well or, or one of honour. Uh, and he takes that back and then gives that to basically the, the army headquarters in London. Uh, normally that comes with promotion or some sort of reward is going on with there. So there's probably a reason that he was singled out for that after too long. Okay. And I think this, this is interesting that this next bit, you know, he's promoted to Lieutenant Colonel a year later, which again, I think that's as far as you can buy your promotions. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, you can buy your way up to Lieutenant Colonel, uh, which is commanding officer of a, a regiment, so a battalion. Mm-hmm. And after that, uh, you do actually have to be picked out and uh, promoted up on merits after right. Which, which is interesting because it took him six years then to get his next promotion. So he had to earn, really earn it. Had to really earn it. Had to do his time, uh, and he does spend you know a fair bit of that overseas. His his next posting is to the uh, Egyptian expedition. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that briefly. Um, you know, uh, I think Napoleon was gone by this point. He was back in France, but uh, Napoleon had a, uh, I guess a garrison station there uh, under Mendel. Uh, yeah, so uh, this is one of the, the controversial ones about Napoleon. He he heads back and leaves quite a lot of his men uh, in in Egypt, uh, arguably either as a rear guard or he's kind of left them <laughs> and uh, and gone off to his own political ambitions, hasn't he? Really, right. right. And uh, the the British uh, expedition uh, lands at Akabir Bay and uh, lands by boat. There's some skirmishing on the sand. Uh, quite an interesting action because they row ashore. Uh, and then uh, fighting the sand dunes, and then uh, with the pushing inland and fighting the uh, fighting the French in Egypt with all the kind of complicated local politics that's going on as well. Right. Um, and this is a force that's been brought together from England. Actually, some troops from uh, the Mediterranean theatre, uh, some from India, and uh, it's quite a big force under Ralph Abercrombie. And uh, no, no relation to Abercrombie and Fitch, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> uh, 
And they, uh, something that's just as a sort of side note, this is one of the first uh, examples that most of the force that are going out there are actually inoculated. They're all given a vaccine, uh, I believe, for smallpox before they go on mass. Mm-hmm. So there's some, there's, there's some modern thinking uh, going on as far back as 1801. Yeah, and I don't want people to think like, you know, the French that were left there were just a bunch of uh, chumps. I mean, there were some good soldiers there. General Desai and uh, future Marshal Dubu was still there. So it wasn't going to be an easy fight, even though even with Napoleon out of there, it was an easy fight. Uh, I think the the British had some setbacks uh, in that uh, campaign. Uh, it certainly wasn't easy. Uh, I would say that some, definitely not all, of the British uh, troops there were a little bit second rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some units uh, that don't always shine themselves in glory, and they were having to kind of make brigades out of different units. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was also were some like kind of first battalions uh, out there. So anyone who's a little bit un- unfamiliar with the, the British system, uh, you typically started to have at this time first battalions, which were meant to be for their overseas service, and the second battalion of the same regiment. So for uh, Hill at this time, he was commanding the 90th Regiment of Foot, and they tend to normally have two battalions. One's meant to be the depot uh, back in the UK uh, and provide release, and the first battalion out overseas. Now, normally, because they get so much like demand on them sometimes you end up with a second battalion going out and there's a bit of rivalry between them got it when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply and then I guess some, at some point he was wounded in the head by a musket ball, uh, General Hill. But uh, he wasn't a general at this time, Colonel Hill. Colonel Hill, yeah, in, uh, out in Egypt as well. Uh, and uh, I don't think it was a serious wound, but you think that, you know, a musket ball actually hits it, you know, ranges about 100 yards. Yeah. Uh, so that's a piece of lead flying at quite close range. Uh, yeah. Still going to cause a bit of a dent. Yeah, I don't want a musket ball anywhere near my head. Yeah, no, so. no, 100 yards or 200 yards, the first day away. But uh, his efforts and you know, Abercrombie's as well, the French are eventually driven out of Egypt, correct? They are, it's not an easy campaign, uh, mm-hmm. because they are fighting in you know, difficult circumstances. They're in, in the desert, it's not somewhere uh, many of the generals and the, the troops certainly don't have the experience. Uh, in doing so. And it's mostly uh, kind of concentrated as far as they can to the coastal towns going up and down and securing those key ports. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've got that kind of sphere of influence in the Mediterranean, which when you think about we're just kind of pre uh, Trafalgar uh, building up to, and it's really where Britain wants to have its trade and its influence going overseas, linking up India, the Cape Colony, which is basically South Africa, uh, back to the UK. Mm-hmm. And our allies, you know, uh, there and overseas. So after the French are driven out of Egypt, uh, I believe Hill, where does his eyes as he takes? I know he gets promoted general shortly after, but where, he's not in Europe battling Napoleon just yet. Uh, not yet. Not until uh, the first part of the Peninsula War back okay. in uh, back in the Releaser. So there's a couple of years uh uh, in the in the middle, where I believe he kind of he heads home. Uh, he's really keen rider, uh, fox hunter on his hounds, and uh, you know he has the social scene of Shropshire effectively. Yeah, let's let's talk about that fox hunting thing. I 
I read somewhere that him being an avid fox hunter might have developed his keen eye for ground. Do you think that has something to do with like, how well he did as a general? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a rider or definitely not a hunter, but I can kind of see that these people, they Wellington's famous for having an eye of the ground. Mm-hmm. And it's anything you can kind of do, get the countryside, get that appreciation of, in this case, where his quarry, his prey might be hiding as a fox in the in the scrub. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and he's also going to spend a lot of time on the horse, heading over lots of countryside. And uh, yeah, I certainly find that these people, they, they tend to have um, what we call ground appreciation in the army. Mm-hmm. They can know where you can hide people, where you can move people. Mm-hmm. And Hill seems to have this. Um, mm-hmm. I think probably part of his like kind of, you say, like rural upbringing, uh, he spends a lot of time in the saddle. Right, right. So jumping ahead in our story a little bit, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just move to the Peninsula War, which I believe really got going 1807, 1808, when... Um, Napoleon basically takes over Portugal and then from there takes over Spain, correct? Yes, yeah. He kind of, uh, General Juno marches into Portugal and then uh, he kind of puts the king and the, the prince regent of, uh, so the crown prince of Spain under house arrest and uh, that starts the uh, Dos de Mayo uprising and there grows the Peninsula War really from there. Hill's there from the, uh, the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was... Uh, Wellington, as he was then Arthur Wellesley, writes a letter to Hill when he's got his command in uh, Cork and they're wondering where to go. And he writes to Hill uh, to ask him, you know, is he basically coming with him? And he hopes he will. And mm. uh, he does. He, he gets brigade command. So above the regiment, you've got the brigade level. Uh, and he and Hill goes out there. And he's at the first major uh, battle, the Battle of Releasa, mm. August 1808. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to appreciate, though, like, you know, He's still learning, although he's a general, he's learning under two of the greats, right? I mean, the future Duke of Wellington and Sir John Moore. Yes. Uh, uh, so when, after Releasa, uh, he ends up on Sir John Moore's uh, infamous retreat to Corona. And mm-hmm. it's right at the northwest of Spain. Yep. Uh, after, so there's Releasa, then there's Vimero, uh, the Treaty of Cintra following Vimero. Yep. And Wellington and the uh, other two generals are brought back to the UK. Hill stays out there with his unit and uh, follows Sir John Moore into Spain, uh, which is only just saved uh, by a, a bit of intelligence from a chap called Major Waters. Yeah. And uh, just about ma- hit Moore with Hill, just about managed to get away, marching all the way, basically from just inside the Spanish border to the Spanish coast in winter, which is, uh, you know, really devastating. Yeah, I read about that. Like uh, Napoleon had this grand plan to trap them. And I think mm. some piece of intelligence that he was sending to Sultz or something got intercepted. And it, it was just in the nick of time that Moore was able to get to the coast. I, I believe it was one of those things that's like almost countdown clock in a James Bond film. It was like seconds away. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the dispatch rider with it was captured by the Spanish, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he was basically going to be hung up by his ankles in the town centre. Mm. And uh, Major Waters... Uh, general in the end john waters uh bought basically paid for the intelligence off the spanish and uh and takes it to sir john moore saying look this trap's coming in and i focus on uh, waters because he's the one who finds the boats at the battle of porto you know, that's, right. In, that's in, right i say air inverse commas my battle uh that i focus <laughs> on <laughs> well um yeah we can jump to that in here just a sec so just at the battle of corona just to wrap up for one the British are able to basically fight a good rear guard action, keep Marshal Soult at bay while they escape on their their ships, correct? 
that's it. It's um, almost like a bit of a Dunkirk, but rather than just everyone waiting on the, it's the quayside in Corona. It's a harbour town. Uh, they actually they they've trudged all this way north, uh, taking lots of them, taking their wives and their supplies with them. Wow. Okay. So from there, um, just moving the story along, you know, the British obviously evacuate, but then they come back, and we, in our last episode on Duke of Wellington, we talked about the Battle of Oporto where. They routed Marshal Soult there, but it seems like Hill was one of the ones who led that surprise attack, correct? Yes. So this is this is Porto again. I, I hope labor too much. Um, <laughs> but Hill's uh, now given um, another brigade. He's actually got one of the, the, the kind of like the chief brigades of uh, Wellington's unit, and it's his brigade that chosen to go across. Uh, there's actually uh, one of Uxbridge's, uh, so of Waterloo fame, one of his brothers actually goes over mm. and leads the main uh, unit, but he's actually shot in the arm and loses his arm in the battle. So there's quite unlucky brothers there. Mm. Uh, so it's Hill's unit that go over. Uh, Prince Meath from the 3rd Regiment of Foot, known as the Buffs, uh, along with the 66th and 48th. And uh, we know there's some German riflemen from the 5th, 60th, at least uh, one that goes over mm. and fight off the uh, the French advances from the, the 17th and the, and the 70th. Uh, attacks on uh, on the north bank of Porto Mm -hmm. and so it's Hill's units that are doing that Uh, during the advance to Porto he's actually given his one of his first independent commands by Wellington and he goes across the uh, the coast so Wellington spreads his troops out he sends Beresford on a big wide northeast unit uh, like kind of sweeping round with his Portuguese and they hope to pick up some more Portuguese militia and expand the force and then do a blocking motion Mm -hmm. Uh, the first part goes really well but they're not able to block Salt's retreat Right. Uh, and Hill goes on the coast and crosses like a lagoon in boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's independent command for Hill as well. Yeah, for sure. And, um, I, you know, Marshal Sula obviously has to evacuate very quickly. He marches up north to Marshal Ney. And then from there, like we, we talked about in the Duke of Wellington episode, Wellington decides instead to kind of drive into the heart of Spain towards uh, Talavera, correct? Talavera. So... Uh, Hills then increased his his force to he's then a divisional commander at Talavera, mm-hmm. uh, and it's his unit then that is the the famous uh, night attack. I, hopefully, you're kind of aware of this one. Yes, yes. It's uh, it all goes a bit wrong. Uh, so <laughs> uh, some of Hills' unit they're put on this hill above Talavera, mm-hmm. and they think they're in reserve, so they're not the front line. So they only put out like a few sentries. Whereas mm-hmm. actually, they're the front line, and they should have out like pickets you know it's like sentries right. in, in force right uh they don't do it and on come the french night attack and they managed to get basically past those sentries and into the units uh hill rides out in the middle of the night and mm-hmm. actually hill is grabbed by a frenchman and there's a bit of a scuffle and he manages to uh, get away mm. yeah i um i read this is the first occasion on which he supposedly swore that's one of the things I, I love. And I, I know I'm probably not the same as, as Hill in many ways. He's one of these people that I'd actually, I think I'd probably get on better than, with him than Wellington, but we're very different. He doesn't drink and he doesn't swear. And, uh, um, is and that, this, is, just, this is one of the two that he apparently swears out loud. Is that just because he's from a noble family or just that he's just that restrained in himself? and that even... no, I think it's because he's restrained. I think mm-hmm. uh, especially the drinking, uh, the noble families definitely put away... Uh, the wine and the claret mm. and the parties. Mm-hmm. And I imagine when they're away from uh, their, their peers and their ladies, they would swear like troopers, <laughs> um, especially, you know, kind of 
men's only culture away on campaign. Right. Uh, and uh, things are going to be rough, but apparently this is one of the only two times uh, that he swears. All right. Well, we'll get to the second one here in a minute. But uh, uh, overall story of Talavera, by morning, though, things have kind of regained, you know, they've rega- regained the situation and they're able to fight off Marshal Victor and his troops. Yes, across the the plains, just north of the town, it's a it's a difficult victory. It's a really it's a really bloody victory, um, yeah. and this is the one where the uh, grass sets fire and uh, lots of the wounded are scorched and killed in the flames afterwards as well. Yeah, that's tragic. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was a messy battle. Um, but from there, he, you know, moving ahead in the story, he has to retreat back, basically back towards Portugal. Just I think for supply reasons and just so he doesn't get. I guess, enveloped by the, the size of the French army. Yeah, and this is always the problem Wellington's got in uh, the Peninsula War, that he's got to rely upon uh, having won the support of the Spanish, which he doesn't really have to the full extent during the Talavera campaign. It's where more is um, unseated, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the relationship with the Spanish is always difficult. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and two, this, the French army is always bigger than his because they are out there putting down the insurrection and the guerrilla war. Right. Uh, and if they can bring themselves to bear at any one time, he's got to move back because there's no point fighting a battle that he knows he's going to lose. Right, right. It, it almost seems like a like a chessboard where he's he's like a yes. for, at night to move towards the queen and then back towards his own lines. And you know, there's, there's a lot of that going on and moving those pieces into place. Yeah. Uh, so jumping ahead, he um, 1810, 1811, uh, he fights, uh, Hill does against Marshal Massena at the Battle of, and I'll let you say the words, it's a tough one. Uh, so he fights at the Battle of Bukaso, or Bukako, <laughs> to, uh, depending on your pronunciation. Uh, yeah. There's a, there's a the lovely Portuguese inflection. And this is the, the one on the mountain ridge, uh, yep. amazing Sierra, so this like long mountain. Uh, honestly, if you get a chance to see a battlefield, uh, this is one just kind of blows your minds because uh, it's so steep. Yeah. And um, in 1812, he after after they push Messina away and um, they, you know, uh, you know, move back into Spain, they help recapture Madrid, correct? A uh, little bit later, a little bit later. Yep. yep. Um, but yes, he helped recapture Madrid, and uh, in the intervening time, uh, Hill was given another independent uh, command to kind of watch the siege at Badajoz. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is uh, this is quite an important time that he's given. I think it's uh, a strong division of of men to kind of watch that siege and act as a blocking. Mm-hmm. And it's during this time uh, that he leads it's a relatively small battle in the scale of the Peninsula War, uh, but he leads. Uh, a raid or a battle, and I'm going to butch my Spanish here, but Arrow des dos Molinos. Yes. Up in the mountains. Yeah, yeah. I was reading about that against, uh, I think, General Girard and the French side. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, General Girard, and he's holding uh, he's holding these kind of mountain area, and uh, Hill kind of gets the drop on him and, yeah. uh, and goes in. Yeah, I was reading about that. I, I guess uh, Girard's sentries, there was a hailstorm the night before, and they had their backs turned. So they wouldn't be like, you know, getting pelted with hail. And that's the direction that the British charged in from. They charge in, I think, led by uh, Highlanders with fixed bayonets. They, they pushed out, Hill pushes out his army onto two flanks. Mm-hmm. And Gerard and his men who escape actually literally running up those mountains. And that's where the British kind of reached towards the bottom of and don't give the full pursuit. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, they capture uh, some of the drums famously uh, of the French and some guns as well. Yeah, with really few losses. 
Yeah, let's let's pause for a sec here and talk about his nickname, which I think is interesting. It was it, and I think that's why his men went above and beyond for him. So the, his nickname is Daddy Hill, <laughs> um, which feels a bit weird when you just say it by itself. Right. right. Um, but yeah, it's it's a term of endearment. Um, you know, there was uh, General Robert Crawford, Black Bob Crawford. He was known for his bad temper. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is why I think I quite like Roland Hill. You know, his men are giving him, a, you know, you can give him your boss effectively any nickname you want behind his back, can't you? Right. Uh, so long as he doesn't find out. But they're right. calling him Daddy Hill. And I think everyone, this word gets around um, about this kind of time. is It's a term of endearment and a good one, too. Do you have some examples of his courteous behavior or how, how, how he treated his men? Uh, so he, I, I love to see the statistics. I think he was one of these ones that he wasn't actually known for, known for the flogging. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crawford's uh, famously tried to flog and, and shout and have this temper. Uh, but no, it was more this kind of general demeanor uh, mm-hmm. that he uh, would look after his men, uh, make sure they were fed and give them actual, uh, there were some examples where he actually made sure out of his own kind of pocket, he would uh, feed the men. I think mm-hmm. there was one time that he uh, like kind of fed people who gave him like letters in his headquarters rather than just dismissing them, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite an important one. Yeah. Uh, he tried to make sure his men were uh, paid on time, and uh, he was really courteous to them. Yeah, and that's you know from a general to a private soldier. When you extend that with mm-hmm. a Georgian society two hundred years ago, you're talking aristocracy to peasantry, basically, or mm-hmm. the working class. Uh, that goes a long way, and all of a sudden, they're, I think the men have treated their feeling more like being human, right? Be- right. Not being just a name and a number. They've actually got their own identity under. Right, and that makes other men want to serve in your your. I would imagine your division. Like, wow, that guy really takes care of his men. Yeah, I, I think if you had the opportunity, you'd be like, okay, I'll, yeah. I'll work for him. I'd love to go to work under him rather than over there, where it's a bit more tougher. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Um, so moving back into our story, um, you know, after 1812, you know, they capture Madrid and then the battles of Vittoria, he's again integral, correct? Yeah, at Vittoria, he leads one of the, I think they, I think they call it a column, mm-hmm. uh, but effectively attacking divisions. So this mm-hmm. is enveloping around uh, Vittoria uh, onto the town itself and they're pushing across many different uh, vital crossing points over the river across the bridges and fighting in and fighting and pushing on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's basically one of the three chief kind of columns that are going in on that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be starting to lead on uh, to make the main campaign effectively that will then push towards France. Uh, mm-hmm. as they know at this stage, but it's really important, actually, Victoria. Again, we, said, we mentioned in the last podcast, but Wellington uh, unfairly recognised as being a defensive general. Right. Victoria, Wellington and his men on the attack against well, Joseph Bonaparte, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Jordan, Marshal Jordan, yeah. Um, from there, though, I think the attack gets pressed on to the Pyrenees, right, which is the mountain range that separates, really, Spain and France. That's it. So, say so it eventually ends up in, in France. It's really strange that the Peninsula War ends up in South France. <laughs> um, we, we don't call it the Pyrenees and uh, Pyrenees campaign uh, right. for nothing. Right. And, uh, yeah, so the Pyrenees campaigns are really difficult one without a very detailed map because it's against quite a long length of the uh, the Pyrenees you know which is dramatic scenery up the mountains and uh effectively a hill sometimes independently with is actually like kind of pushing into almost a core size now up from division mm-hmm. uh it's got some independent command and he's going on the attack as well uh, as well as Wellington's general orders to kind of like take France 
Yeah, and it's, I read that in, um, his work in December 1813 was his finest performance uh, in the defense of St. Pierre. Uh, defense of St. Pierre, uh, he's kind of doing uh, counter attacks and holding the lines in against uh, with our friend again, uh, Marshal Soultz. Mm -hmm. uh, in this kind of time, he's, he's leading the defense of uh, the Franco Spanish border. Uh, then we get into uh, December in the winter, and you think both sides are fighting up these these mountains and these passes in in winter, mm -hmm. in, in their woolen clothes and hobnail boots, and it's mm -hmm. the Battle of Neve on the thirteenth of December uh, that he takes uh, thousands of men across a river. It's got mm -hmm. a little bridge, and the bridge breaks, and this part of the river's really swollen. And Soult does a counterattack, and just then, when Hill thinks it's all lost, that's the second time he swears. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 saw, I read the uh, quote that, you know, Hill was, quote, seen at every point of danger and rallied regiments in person. And as you mentioned, he was even heard to swear. And it, I, the, the numbers were, I mean, he was outnumbered two to one. It was really the odds were against him, I think. <laughs> if you're somebody who doesn't swear, that's, that's a fair time to do it. You're, <laughs> you're two for one. Yeah, they have twice as many guns, twice as many men. He's pushed across the river and is now isolated from reinforcements. So he's just got to dig his heels in. Yeah, and do kind of a really stubborn defense, and they, you know, all credit to his men as well. You know, they yeah. really pull it off. Yeah, and they, you know, obviously they send Soult off, and we move on December eighteen thirteen. We get into eighteen fourteen, and I think Napoleon abdicates in April of eighteen fourteen. So Napoleon abdicates. Uh, news doesn't reach Wellington or Soult uh, until a few days afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, so they still fight uh, at uh, Toulouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is, you know, really a toughly fought battle just outside the walls. Um, mm -hmm. And it finishes with, with Hill and Wellington kind of pushing the French back inside the town. Mm -hmm. uh, Soultz and his men abandon the town the next day. So both kind of achieved their aims to an extent. And uh, that's where Wellington uh, sends words to Soultz to actually inform him that the war is over. Mm -hmm. uh, as a point that I realised I didn't mention last time, uh, Wellington, again, a man who doesn't show his emotion very well. Uh, when he receives word that Napoleon's abdicated and the war's over, apparently he clicked his fingers and uh, spun around on his heels and mm. shouted ole uh, in, <laughs> in celebration. So he's obviously picked up a little bit of like flamenco dancing in yeah. uh, Spain. I did not know that. That's that's very amusing. I didn't, I, I've never heard that story. Um, but so, yeah, I guess, gee, our stories are over and Hill's all done and and, but no, that's not how it works, huh? That's not how it works. We always end up with the uh, the bigger sequel here, don't we, to a story? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, where where is Hill in the interlude while Napoleon's exiled in Elba? Uh, he goes again back home, mm -hmm. and uh, he's actually this is quite common at the time. He's a, a member of Parliament, mm -hmm. uh, and and then when he gets back, the rewards are put upon him, and uh, he's elevated from. The House of Commons to the House of Lords and is given his uh, baronetcy, so he becomes uh, Lord Viscount Hill. Got it. And then uh, our good chap Napoleon shows up out of nowhere and retakes the throne in 1815. And Hill's there, as I say, as a, as a right hand man, and he's command of the second Allied Corps. So without diving down too much into it, uh, yeah. the Anglo Allied Army, uh, yep. the first corps is given to uh, the Prince of Orange, who mm -hmm. Uh, how to be fair, <laughs> has has very little practical military commands. Well, he's a young man, right? He's very... Yeah, he is. And he, yeah. he served on uh, Wellington's staff in the peninsula, and he certainly studied uh, war, which is what the certainly the, the monarchies did. You know, they, they studied 
we've mentioned uh, before we came on, uh, Frederick the Great, and they would have probably studied Alexander and Marlborough, and um, they would have been, they're certainly doing debates about the uh, American War of Independence and things like that. Right. And all of the geometry, trigonometry, etc. But yeah. he, he didn't actually have any practical real experience uh, commanding, you know, brigades, divisions. And because of he was the, the prince and heir to the Kingdom of the Netherlands, yeah. the Prince of Orange is given uh, first corps, the large unit, but Hill's given the second. Towards the end of the battle, uh, you've got Prince of Orange is, is famously wounded uh, near mm. the what's today's the Lion's Mound at Waterloo. Uh, Uxbridge is still there as the actual second in command, so a very difficult relationship because Uxbridge has run off with the Duke's sister-in-law, <laughs> uh, so the Duke's brother's wife. Okay. Uh, so they've got a very uneasy friendship. Right. He's there because he's good friends with the Prince of Regent, and then Hill's there mm-hmm. uh, with two of his brothers actually, so also serve at Waterloo. Mm. And that means that right at the end, if anything was to happen to Wellington from about seven o'clock onwards, uh, Prince of Orange is off the field and wounded. Uxbridge just lost his leg. So Hill's the actual second in command. Uh, and uh, Hill's protecting the right side of the, the line, correct? Yeah, so he's mostly got uh, the right-hand side of Waterloo. Mm. He's got a really important job and a large, large force to do it as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the quote I, I wrote down is, from Hill is that, uh, I quote, I verily believe there was never so tremendous a battle fought as that of Waterloo, which, end quote, which says everything, you know, and he was, correct me if I'm wrong, the general that asked the Imperial Guard of Napoleon to lay down its arms. That's right. It's uh, that kind of scene that in the 1970 film, uh, they form square and uh, they ask him to surrender. And in the, in the film, they shout, Murd. Um, <laughs> But in real life, as you know, it's more complicated than that. Yep. Uh, there was a rear guard action. Yep. Uh, quite a lot were actually captured or yep. melted away into the night. Uh, and yep. then there was subsequent rear guard actions. But that was Hill. Uh, he was there. There's a beautiful painting of him uh, inviting the old guards to surrender. Mm. And, and he went through that. Uh, you know, they've said that the, the middle part of the battle, when uh, the Grand Battery opens up, that it was the hardest pounding than they ever had. And that means they had more artillery on them there in that afternoon at Waterloo than in any point in the peninsula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just amazing that battle. I mean, just the ebb and flow, it could have gone either way for sure. And it, you know, he needed to be steadfast there. Uh, you've got men uh, like Thomas Picton who was suffering uh, with shell shock or PTSD. Uh, and certainly his mental health was, was suffering. Yep. Maybe even Ney was, uh, and these men had been through long campaigns Yeah, and, and they had that like kind of that dangling a promise of peace just above them uh, yeah. in 1814, the summer of peace where lots of society was celebrating. That's why there's so many people in uh, in Brussels. Yeah. Because they were trying to live, you know, life in the moment. And they had been through, uh, you think he's been on campaign off and on since 1800. Right. So it's a long time to be away. Yeah. So from there, obviously, Napoleon goes off to a second exile and Hill is finally able to go into a non- military life right does he he becomes a politician uh where, where, where did, what happens to our good friend general hill after this general hill does actually really well uh he's made governor of lots of towns so that's like regional commanders of the military uh in the uk uh, he's given all sorts of uh awards from austria russian uh, uh britain and france uh he's at a coronation of king george the fourth who's the prince regent going on to become king mm-hmm. and he's right there uh with with wellington who's uh, also one in one of the great offices of states 
he's in the procession there. And uh, Wellington briefly, actually about 15 years, steps down as commander in chief. Mm-hmm. So that's the top of the armed forces, the, the army and the navy combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from 1828 to 1842, uh, Hill steps into that role. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, the only reason he doesn't go beyond 1842 is he passes that year, correct? Yeah, so he, he serves until uh, his death. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 70 years old, and uh, Wellington actually then comes back into the role that he's uh, really advanced in age. Uh, so Hill does uh, a long stint in the top job. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just not as well known. Uh, and so it's the time that the army should be reforming and arguably doesn't reform that much but it's overseas and it's really well one of the the large parts of the british empire is consolidating its power between india and uh, cape colony and africa and uh, areas like that so he's on it's more of an administrative role and a a head of uh but he's he's there um kind of controlling the armed forces yeah and then uh he was there married didn't have kids so did his titles pass on to someone yeah uh his his titles passed on through his uh brothers Brothers, okay. So he had, uh, I think, three brothers, of which two were at Waterloo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at least Robert and I think I want to say Thomas. Uh, two of his brothers are at Waterloo, oh. and uh, they pass on to his next uh, brother. So the Viscount uh, Hill passes on to them because it has to go through the, the male line. Amazing that three brothers could get through the Peninsula War and Waterloo without, you know, violent death. That's that's what that's great. It's it's pretty good odds you know um uh, i think there were some uh some minor injuries really at waterloo for the other two but he he gets through it apart from that one musket ball right back in egypt he's pretty unscathed through it that's amazing yeah really interesting guy i i, I learned a lot about him um just past couple of days researching him but uh like you said like maybe one of the unheralded un- underrated generals in the in the british army and I think, yeah, I think he was. I think he's a really interesting uh, character. Uh, the fact that we don't know that much about him. He doesn't swear. His men really like him. That He's probably one of these people who's not shouting his own name from the rooftop. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to name some other characters, but, you know, <laughs> some people who uh, who want to be, uh, not even just a household name, they want to be uh, famous and have the glory. And I just don't get that feeling from his character at all. Yeah, just, you know, the way he took care of his men, the way he won consistently. It seems like, he was focused on one thing, that was winning the war. Just winning the war doing and doing right by his men. And I think that, to me, uh, is a huge kind of like depth of gratitude uh, right yeah. there. Yeah, well, I'd uh, like to learn more about him. I, Marcus, I, again, you were wonderful. I thank you for coming on the show and telling us all about General Hill. He was a really interesting guy. He's a really good character. Uh, there's a quick book you can kind of get out there on him uh, called Wellington's Right Hand. Uh, and that's by Joanna Hill. Uh, no coincidence. That's a uh, kind of a family descendant. Okay. Yeah, I might have so to I can look at that. One. That's definitely available online and uh, all those good places. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Again, thank you for coming on the show. You were brilliant as always. And uh, yeah, let's let's talk soon. I, I love learning more about all the different characters and personalities in the British Army. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I hope your uh, listeners enjoy it. Yeah. Thank you.